Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the immense privilege of chatting with one of my favorite people, New York Times bestselling author and Texas royalty, Michael Arsenault. Whether you know Michael personally from social media or his brilliant books, you can't escape, and why would you want to, the love he receives on all platforms and the devoted community of followers who look to Michael for his hilarious take on everything from politics to entertainment. Michael is such a talented and beautiful observer of life that it's no surprise at all that his first book, I Can't Date Jesus, which was published in July 2018, became an instant New York Times bestseller, and why I Can't Date Jesus featured on dozens of most anticipated reads lists in 2018. This essential and important collection of essays, which is equal parts hilarious and heartbreaking, offers readers a front row seat to Michael's joys, struggles, and experiences as a black queer man growing up in America. His incredible talent at storytelling is stunning, as is Michael's honesty and realness about faith and religion, family, and self-discovery, a deeply moving and essential book in 2018, 2020, and for all time. And it is so wonderful that Michael's latest book, I Don't Want to Die Poor, which was published in April, provides a second opportunity for readers to enjoy more of Michael's wit and wisdom as he explores his personal struggles and frustrations with the financial and emotional price tags that come with following your dreams. And Michael so brilliantly shines a spotlight on his own struggles and experiences with debt, unaffordable healthcare, and the ongoing strength it takes to face and challenge glaring inequalities head on, especially in a country that makes it incredibly challenging. I Can't Date Jesus and I Don't Want to Die Poor are incredible, just like Michael, and I can't recommend them enough. In both books, Michael uses his powerful voice to reveal the truths behind important and relatable topics, relationships, family, sex, dating, politics, and career choices. Every essay is special and unique, but when you put them together, you're reading literary gold. I love chatting with Michael about his books, how emotional and financial debt demands so much more from us than a monthly payment, and why conversations about race, politics, and failed systems will always be timely and important. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am chatting with Texas royalty. And I'm just so excited to be here today talking with Michael Arsenault. How are you today? I am good for a dystopic nightmare in America. Well, globally, but particularly in America. But I'm good, all things considered. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled. I genuinely appreciate the energy. And it's hard not to be energetic when I'm I'm talking about your work. Thank you. I am just really, really excited. And I also just want to extend a huge congratulations on all your very well-deserved success for I Can't Date Jesus, New York Times bestseller, and I Don't Want to Die Poor. And I can't believe that it's been almost two years that I Can't Date Jesus came out. I know that you are so well known in America and I know that you are also very well known over here on this side of the pond, but for those listeners who haven't either finished your books or are about to start reading them or looking to picking them up, um, I would love for you to chat about what your incredible books are about. That is very generous. I'm not sure how well known, but I'll I'll take it and thank you. I Can't Date Jesus um, is essentially about me unlearning what I thought it meant to be Black and gay. In this context, um, I write about an early exposure to AIDS with my uncle and growing up really Catholic. So I basically write about kind of unlearning what I was conditioned, what I thought it meant to be that. And it's a lot of ways about figuring out who you are on your own terms, I should say, and 
forging your identity through um, pleasure and kind of actually experiencing your sexuality and pleasure. So I don't want to adopt, it doesn't deviate from that theme so much, but it does add a caveat in that, you know, I tell it through the context of uh, having private student loan debt and challenging social mobility, but I would say more or less it's about, yes, it's about that, but it's also about the emotional debt we carry in terms of the physical uh, debt and basically um, how freedom comes with like a cost, you know, like true freedom, you know, as particularly as you live in America or like any capitalist country, like it comes with a cost. It's a lot about that. And they are a lot alike in that they are, you know, written by me, but they're very much different in that, you know, they're taking on two different uh, subjects in a different way. Um, Whereas my sexuality is obviously informed in the book and I don't, I continue to talk about certain experiences, but that really doesn't lead the conversation in the second book. So that's kind of more of the difference. But yeah, they're both about two different stages of my life and basically how in one way or another, we can kind of be contained by one thing or something else. If, for instance, someone picked up I Don't Want to Die Poor and read that first, it's not a sequel. So it's not necessarily they need to read one before the other. Obviously, we want them to read both, but it's not necessarily a continuation. It's more, as you said, the different chapters of your life. And what's so wonderful about both these books is that you give us such a variation of different chapters in your life in the chapters of the essays that you write and it's really interesting because I came to um to know you through social media and we obviously connected that way and I picked up your book and I absolutely loved it and I wasted no time in in messaging you and telling you how much I enjoyed your book and I don't know if I'm a little bit biased obviously because we're both Texans and so I tend to feel very protective about Texas storytellers. But it's interesting as well, because I think we also connect not only on, you know, being raised Catholic, but we also have left Texas to to live in other places. So you've lived in Los Angeles, you now live in New York. How did you feel when you actually left Texas? I think when it comes to like Texas, I mean, Texas is kind of a nation unto itself. So I think in a lot of ways, some people don't ever leave because of socioeconomic reasons, but be it they actually have the means to leave. And why would you leave if you can afford to enjoy Texas? It's actually really quite nice, even if you don't have money. I mean, if you do have a lot of money, actually, if you don't have that much money, particularly in a city like Houston, or at least, you know, before more recently in recent years, compared to other major cities, it was still more affordable than others. So that could be one thing. And other people can't leave just because they can't afford to. Um, In between moving to Los Angeles and moving to New York, I've moved back home twice because I just didn't have the money. Um, And, you know, for people who don't grow up in the nicest circumstances like me, you leave home because as much as you might love the city, it's not home because home was also kind of a place of pain for you. And so it's sometimes hard to reconcile, even if you do love the city and the culture and, and other people there, you still have your certain experiences. It could be any different thing. But a lot of people in Texas do leave, but a lot don't. And in that way, I mean, like Texas is so big and massive. I tend to look at it that way. A lot of times I really kind of start with Houstonian first. And then I'm selectively about what other Texans because I trash Dallas just by default because she's supposed to. But everyone else, I'm usually nice too. But um, yeah, you know, Texas is just, you know, it's so big. You can drive for 12 hours, basically, and still be in Texas. So, you know, we all have our different reasons. But I think in a lot of ways, what's unique about Texas, particularly Houston, at least, like Houston is so diverse, statistically just as diverse in New York, if not more ethnically diverse. So many different experiences are Houston that are different, but they all sound the same in that, oh yeah, that sounds like Houston. And by that, I mean, like if you read somebody like Brian Washington, um, those stories might not be like my Houston, but I, I know of that Houston, they still make sense. It's true that people don't leave, but then it's true that some of us really do leave. And I will say though, a lot of folks that have left 
Some never go back, but there are quite a few I can think of that, you know, they made lives other places, but they do miss Texas. Texas is a very wild place, but you can still find a little bit of everything. And I think even professionally, my work keeps me away but my work actually might bring me back for another thing. So, you know, we'll see. It is very interesting. And it's its, its own character, if you think about it. Um, right. You know, it, it stars a fair amount in your books, as it would, because it's the place you grew up. Talking about Brian, you know, I love his work. Attica Locke uh, is also from yeah, the Houston area. Amazing. Timby Locke, obviously, as well. All the Locks. Yeah. Uh, shout out to the Locke right. family. There's loads and loads of people that come from the Houston area. Obviously, as you said, Texas is so excitingly diverse. And I love how much um, what you write connects I think with so many different types of readers how relatable and how enjoyable your books are because they do touch on so many different topics I want to start with your first book so I Can't Date Jesus came out in July 2018 and kind of starting at the very beginnings where you start bringing readers in right off the bat the introduction is immensely powerful and you really give a lot of detail about an experience that you had. Your friend, Dre, invites you to attend an Easter service at First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem. And at this point, and I love the first sentence, it was before this day, I hadn't attended church in five Beyonce albums. And I love that you measure years. That's probably sad that I remember that sentence verbatim, but it is very powerful in those 11 pages. You talk about, you know, you enjoyed the service. You said sure to the invitation because your friend asked you to. But walking through the church doors, it wasn't an earth shattering moment of, wow, I I feel like I want to come back to Christianity or I want to come back to church. And one of the things that really stayed with me about this is unlike the Catholic church and, you know, you and I both were raised Catholic, but obviously different experiences all around. Unlike the Catholic church, this was more of a community, a whole mix of people that were there at the church being welcomed. And I was just wondering if you could talk about what you felt that day. I know you go into a lot of detail about it in the book, but what you felt that day and whether it was something that you expected to feel? Well, I had already, you know, heard about the church as being some a place that was actually like progressive. So I didn't really have any misgivings about going to the form. I did not become a regular churchgoer there, but I will say about Pastor Mike Warren is that he and the rest of the, um, the clergy, which was all women outside of him, including his wife, they created a space that, you know, to me speaks to what Christianity is supposed to be about and that it's inclusive and that it's not just merely tolerating people. It's actually accepting and embracing them. I actually recently saw Pastor Mike, um, as he's normally, he goes by on Twitter, speaking related to pride about how, you know, they true queer people and trans people are truly welcome in the space. And I just think, you know, beyond that, it's like he does a lot of like feeding people in Harlem. He remembers a community. I think it's the virtuous of how Jesus really did. Jesus hung with everyone and took care of the most vulnerable. And who among us are the most vulnerable? Who among us need the most love? And so I appreciate people that actually kind of speak to that. You can really feel a place where you're actually accepted versus tolerated. And I think you really can when you go in there. And as I write in the book, had I seen that sooner, perhaps I would be a regular churchgoer, but I had already developed my own sense of kind of connection. But that said, you know, I had gone to the church after that book and I really liked the space. I'm glad it exists. And yeah, I had a really just great feeling. It was nice. Yeah, I'm just really glad the church exists and that it creates space for people who really need it. Because I do think queer people and trans people, like if they, they need, if they are spiritual, you, you should be able to go into a, a space where you feel like really God truly loves you instead of just kind of tolerating you with like an asterisk. And I'm glad I went because it made the book better to write about it. 
Yeah, and it's a great place to start as well, especially because it's quite far removed from what you experienced growing up. And I think what is really nice about what you just touched on there is, whereas, and I'm not saying this is always the case for Catholic churches, but I would say that a large percentage of this is the case, is it very much feels, well, I kind of felt like it was an institution at times, but um, it feels like it's very much about the outside, beautiful exterior often, and, and is the aesthetics, whereas it felt like this to me, it was more about the community and the substance inside the church that was yes. really was really resonating. And, and as you said, and I think it was beautifully put, what we hope comes from something like a church, especially where you perhaps have some misgivings about feeling whether you're actually going to be safe and accepted and invited. When you go into a Catholic church, I, I don't remember anyone saying who's visiting today, whereas that was something that Pastor Mike did when you were there at that service. You know, can whoever's visiting today can That's recognize you. Point. I will say, actually, the black priest that I write about, he did that. I actually kind of think, kind of not to kind of simplify, but I think that's actually kind of a black thing, that sense of community and welcoming. I will say Father Marty that I write about in the church, Mm -hmm. he did used to do that when he took over. However, every other priest that I've engaged has not done that. And particularly in America, a lot of the immigrant population um, from Latin America and Africa is what keeps a lot of the Catholicism numbers higher in America. But that said, um, not even the African priest that I've seen were like foreign priests. It's always been like the American black one that I had. He was the only person that did that. And I think that's also, now I think about it, he used to be Methodist. So that's what it was. He carried that tradition into Catholicism, but he didn't get it from Catholicism. That's funny. (laughs) But it's a very interesting thing, faith. And it's a very interesting concept of, you know, going into a church and worshiping and believing and having that faith. And I can only imagine that for anyone who has attended church services either later in their life or growing up going to mass regularly like you and I did growing up, that to sit there and to listen, that it can feel very difficult to sit there day after day or week after week and look around you and wonder if you're actually being accepted or actually feeling welcome in a place that you probably have a lot of misgivings and whether they want to be in a church. Right. Thinking about where we both connect in terms of being both raised in Texas and being both raised Catholic, um, like you, I never missed Mass. I went every week. I assumed my roles as an altar girl and as a lector, and I actually really liked my priest. But I also, even at a young age, I was very challenging in the literature that I was given to read. And it's one of those things where Again, I have conflicting feelings about, you know, the Catholic Church growing up, even though I had some great experiences. And I was wondering if you could talk through your experience with Catholicism specifically. And, you know, one of the things that I love about your books are just how hilarious and honest you are with everything. And you talk about how you were essentially recruited into the priesthood. That's one of the chapters in your first book. And I would love for you to to talk about that. I think if you go into Catholic mass in America within the last 30 years or so, they've probably mentioned the fact that they don't have a lot of people who are being actively recruited to the priesthood. They often, at least when I went to mass, always did vocations for the priesthood. So Father Marty was a black priest. Um, I would say he invigorated the church in a way that kind of made it more appealing to a lot of the black folks who had probably going Baptist because the service is more accommodating just culturally, more 
I mean, frankly, just entertaining and more spiritually fulfilling. And so, you know, randomly one time during a routine confession, he said he saw a priest in me. He asked me pointed questions. And so I write about in the experience how, you know, it's a flattering offer, but yeah, definitely not for me. Yeah, I don't know whatever happened to Father Marty, but um, he was, he was, he, he made it in earnest and I respectfully did not give it real consideration. <laughs> I'm sure it was to him the highest praise that you could give a young person. That in a queue, which is a very particular black fraternity so he had a vision for me that in both ways um it was cool if you know but not really my style but yeah i like cues too so i get it no cues and priests are cool but not for me yeah maybe the cue thing actually would have worked better than the priesthood shout out to black greek i think as well talking about the hilarious honesty of your books and how generous and trusting you are with your readers you invite them to read and to learn from your experiences in in such an intimate way. What you write is so beautiful, and I feel, as a reader, very lucky to read all of this. And particularly when you write about sex in your books, I feel like this is really, really important. And as I said, it's a very trusting thing to write um, and to, to give your readers that opportunity to read that. And I wanted to chat about how incredibly lucky I feel it is when we have books like yours, nonfiction, fiction, poetry that explores the black queer narrative in such a important way, because it is extremely important, especially in literature, but also in all aspects of life. And I would really love for you to talk about how collectively, not just writers, authors, and poets, but how collectively we can champion and celebrate the Black queer narrative in all aspects of life, even more so than we're doing now. I just think right now in terms of even like the moment that people are finally, well, white people collectively in America are finally like, oh shit, racism, they're really not playing about that. And now we're having like this moment where people acknowledge it and like we're going through this transformative stage and it's something interesting to behold. And one extension of that is like people buying a bunch of black books, but they're buying books that are by black authors, but are actually mostly about racism or the term anti-racism. And that's great to, to educate yourself about racism, but I honestly think at the same time, you should be consuming all aspects of black life if you're actually really familiar. I mean, you know, if you want to be familiar with it. And that includes buying books from like black queer authors and buying stuff that not just only is our pathologies, but also our joy. They're like black queer short fiction writers. They're like, Romance, I look, they're young adults, like people like George Johnson that started. There's no more. There's so many different types of authors right now that I think it's really important that we, you know, c- celebrate all of them and not just limit ourselves to only talking about racism, which in some respect is also still centering white people. You're reading about how you <laughs> control essentially in some aspects black life, not necessarily like, you know, how black people are really living outside of like having to deal with like white folks. What you're doing right now, giving space to people like me or and then the next and then the next and then the next. And then buying the books, you know, posting the books, like those little things really do add up. It's just about highlighting every type of Black author, including every different type of Black queer author, because so many of our stories are different. We're actually in this moment right now, we're having like an outpouring of different types of queer um, literature from Black queer men, women, non-binary, trans women, men. Like we're having this moment where like all of us, queer and trans, are write different books and we all have different varied experiences. And I think all of those should be supported because everybody has a story to tell. And they're not all the same types of stories. And even if they are familiar in subject matter, they're coming from like totally different perspectives because as much as my stuff is, you know, informed by me being a gay man, 
I'm also really writing more than anything from my socioeconomic status and from my region. Like that's more so informing my stuff than anything. That's just one aspect of me and that informs everything else. And every story is unique. And it's also delving into into those stories further to understand the differences and the experiences. So Jericho Brown is a great example. Right. He is an absolutely incredible poet. And I have several of his collections, his poetry collections that I love dearly. All the different authors that have been there for decades, um, you know, James Baldwin, a lot of people are picking up James Baldwin at the moment. So I think the frustration is, is that there are excuses that have been going around for decades, and people saying they don't know where to start, which I think is the stupidest thing ever uttered, because these stories and these books and these voices have been there for decades and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'm just so glad that yours are there for people to pick up. Thank you. appreciate that. I would like to move on to your second book, which came out three months ago, which is so exciting, on the 7th of April, which I'm still convinced was on purpose because it was supposed to be a birthday gift for me, which (laughs) which your birthday is also in April, so we share that as well. I think you just have a real knack, I mean, just for for writing in general because you're so brilliant at it, but I just think you have a knack for making people laugh from the beginning. And I love the handsome college recruiter that you talk about and how you had feelings for and essentially swayed you when you were there at that recruiting event. And I want to talk about the whole college setup in America, because, you know, for anyone who's on this side of the pond, they're not as familiar with it as you and I are. Just really quickly, just for a fact purpose, you and I both know, but for anyone who doesn't, in the States, it is cheaper usually to stay in state and go to university in state than it is to go out of state. And I did find myself laughing so much, but at the same time, the beauty in what you write also has moments where it's heartbreaking as well. So where you reference that you can't feel relief for your wallet or your self-esteem. And it just made me mad reading it um, in terms of thinking about how infuriating the way college is still sold, even in 2020, to unsuspecting young Americans. I would love for you to talk about what you think are the biggest lies that high school graduates are still told today when it comes to college. I would just say, just in terms of how the college system is set up in America, unlike comparable nations, is that other industrialized nations have a much greater investment in public education. Therefore, the cost of education is dramatically lower than that it is in America. Even in the place of Texas, there are certain schools that are relatively cheaper compared to like UCLA, but they might not be necessarily cheaper to me or others within the state or necessarily like you scholarship and still might be specific to folks like you because Texas Tech, I, you know, I visited Texas Tech. It's a lovely school actually, very far from me, but that school is actually really expensive. I know I have a friend whose child, you know, daughter is about to start Texas Tech and they're already thinking about the loans and that among the COVID. But what I write about in the book is essentially how a lot of people are told understandably, particularly if you are Black, that social mobility is usually largely attained through getting a a degree in college and then getting a certain type of job. I write about my experience about that in private student loan debt, which is disproportionately impacting Black college students, particularly because of a lot of things, mostly because of, I mean, broadly racism, but we have an an equal amount (laughs) of access to capital based on a lot of systemic barriers. So it's just one setup after another. So I write about a lot of the facade of the American dream, the realities of what social mobility really looks like in this country. The fact that I was still born under President Ronald Reagan, if you look at stuff on paper in the last 40 years, wage stagnation has not matched rates. So for a number of reasons, yes, I write about my own responsibility in taking out private student loan debts, but also 
outline it's as much an indictment of the system itself as it is kind of some personal interrogation of me and my choices so i write about how student loan debt in fact impacts every facet of my life beyond just the fact of like oh it's expensive to pay a loan so i try to take it in terms of like mix of human pathos much like i can't date jesus but the realities of financial hardship are what they are so it's a book really about actual economic anxiety it's through the prisms of student loan debt particularly private loan debt but it's about a reality I think a lot of Americans are living in that, you know, more often than not, no matter what you do, it, you're probably not being paid what you deserve unless you're the person being kind of like doing the exploiting. I just talk about in the context of student loan debt. But, you know, a lot of people have taken to the message of the book because one way or another, they feel right now kind of screwed over by the system. And a lot of the factors I write about in the book, people say the book is so timely now, but it was timely before this because America is very much an unequal place. A lot of countries are, but America is far worse than many others. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it is very interesting living on this side of the pond and understanding and learning how university and, you know, loans work over here. So as an example, over here in the UK, you don't have to pay off your student loans or you don't have to start paying off your student loans until you get to a certain salary. Um, so you're able to defer your payments until you get to a certain salary, or at least that was the case when I last looked into it. And it's something that comes out of your wage every month, your student loans. So you can set it up in that way as well. In my experience, I could only defer for, I think it was like six to nine months. And I decided to do a master's after I graduated. So I, I had a little bit more time, but I had loans on top of that. So I had all of these loans. Um, and like you write about in your book, being harassed on a regular basis is crippling across the board. And it's not just student loan debt either. But this whole setup looking at, um, and you obviously add your brilliant sense of humor to it as well, but it is a very serious topic that is crippling a lot of Americans because of the wage disparity, the economic disparity. And I just feel like there's this failing formula that's currently in place in terms of we're brought up to believe that college is the best option or is perhaps an option. And essentially, you're then forced to pay off these loans that a lot of people have to take out. And it generates and causes all this stress and illness and, you know, sometimes chronic stress and illness. And then you go to the doctor and you have to pay a super expensive copay uh, for your visit with below standard health insurance a lot of times. And I just feel like we need to be having more conversations, as you allude to in the book, that address this, particularly across the inequalities in America as well. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, America can't get it. I mean, I guess it can't get worse right now, apparently. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, unfortunately, pandemic kind of rushed conversations that we were going to have already about a lot of this going on. And sadly, it's only going to get worse in light of the, the handling of the coronavirus by that man and how it's hurt the economy. I mean, just a lot of people are really hurting right now. They were hurting before this, but again, it's only exacerbated the stuff. I would like to think we'll have more conversations. Well, actually, we, we're not going to be able to help but have conversations because even as I say this now, we're kind of under a wave of people being evicted across the country. A lot of people are losing their insurance because they lost their jobs. So we're going to be forced to have these conversations. I, I mean, there are already people out screaming and hurting. I just whether or not we actually kind of move forward um, remains to be seen. But yeah, I agree. And I feel like sweet potato... Saddam, as you call him, which is probably my favorite expression, and I think he's turning oranger by the day. The way in which we're now seeing what is happening, and as you said, it's, it's only going to get worse, and these conversations are going to have to happen, but also we need to be implementing change and actually making things change to help the situation, not just have these conversations. But at the same time, I feel like, as you said, your book was timely 
years and years and years ago because it doesn't just address your own experience and it doesn't just look at the crippling student loan debt that a lot of Americans face, but it's also looking at a myriad of things that we need to be helping and be looking at in America. And I feel like social media as well has some respects so provided opportunities for people to be having these conversations. And you're obviously very well known across Twitter and Instagram, and you talk about everything. And it's interesting, I think, because you and I didn't grow up with social media, so to speak, but it certainly has formed a part of our life, both professionally and personally. And with Instagram turning 10 years old later this year, you know, you have a dedicated chapter in I Don't Want to Die Poor, which is I Love Instagram, but essentially is killing you. And I feel like in this very hyper social media look at me world, where you say in the book, everyone looks like they're living their best lives. I'd love for you to talk about how you, as you say in the book, you know, for the most part, I've learned not to allow how other people view me to alter how I view myself, which I feel is a very difficult thing to do, especially on social media. And I would love to know how you embrace the good, the bad and the ugly that comes with platforms like Instagram. I frankly don't really have much of a choice until I I don't. I mean, a lot of my life is doing something you don't you, you don't want to do until you don't have to do it. And then finding some way to deal with it and not let it suck you in or destroy you over time because I don't have to. In this case, I write primarily for now on the internet. That's since shifted. I now write books. Hopefully, you know, TV adaptations will work out. But I don't really enjoy being on the internet like that. But at the same time, I grew up with kind of essentially the development of social media when it was Yahoo Messenger or AOL Messenger, when it was message boards. I got on those things because I wasn't allowed to get out of the house. I turned to them to actually feel like I had some type of voice and connection, type of education. The same way cable TV was like, even though necessarily the TV was raggedy, we at least could get cable after a while. That was my access point to other things. And that's the truth for a lot of other people is why we connect. I think that's another story about how social media in general, like we're connected, but not really. But I think, you know, I referenced the lifestyles of Ripson Famous in the, the 1980s, but that's very much kind of classic Americana in particularly the last 40 years in that. We love our mirages collectively. We love our, fa- our fairy tales about how things are. It's easier for everybody to talk about the best parts of their lives than the worst. And I actually don't begrudge anybody for volunteering the worst aspects of their lives for consumption on the internet of all places because it's a mean place. So it's not really the point to call people fake, but it's just to say that the medium is designed to not really be great for our mental health. So if we have to be on it in certain cases like me, because, yeah, people do pay attention to when I post and men have to sell books and I have to sell articles and that stuff shouldn't matter so much. But everybody's pressured to perform. Or, you know, people are just sucked in because now more than ever, I mean, you want some kind of insight into people if you're actually staying inside. We're not doing that so much in America, but you get what I mean. That stuff can impact you. Nobody's like not immune. However, after a certain point, you have to learn, at least I would think, to not let it insult you so much. Or at least in my case, I'm just like most people I was allowing to make me feel bad about myself are like people who might have perfect bodies or whatever, whatever, but they still are looking for something that I innately have had since I was like a teenager. Is that I was before that even really a sense of who I am? Maybe not completely knowing who it is and like not completely own it, but I think even when I, I've been a lot more sure of myself than I've ever given myself credit for in the past. And that's just something that, I don't know, I'm 36. I'm not going to look at Instagram as if it's bothering me. I look at it less. I really, and the thing is, I didn't like much of it anyway. Like I'm usually only really on it because I have to be for work. So why am I letting this bother me so much? I mean, that might not work for everybody else, but whatever it will take to get you to that point figure it out. And I mean, it sounds easier said than done, but I mean, frankly, when you want things to change, you just have to commit to changing it day after day. 
And I, I mean, I know it's hard. It's weird to talk about sometimes how social media impacts people. Like, it feels like you're being that vulnerable to admit it, but it's fine. It's real life. It is what it is. But, you know, again, it used to bother me. It doesn't so much anymore. If it bothers you in any way, I hope you do find whatever tools you need to kind of like not let it get to you so much because it really shouldn't. Yeah. And I will just say on that, it's worth following Michael across every platform just because everything he posts is is fantastic. Before we get on to the last bit, I want to talk about my favorite essay in this book, which is entitled Mama's Boy. And I messaged you after I finished the book and told you that I had stayed up until the very early hours of the night crying my eyes out because it was just so beautiful. And I I read the essay twice because the text was blurry, because I was crying, but also because it was so amazing. And I would love for you to talk more about it. I read about my mom and her being a co-signer. So just when I talk about emotional weight, it's kind of about this is part of what I refer to. Effectively, like, I think, you know, my mom has been let down by a lot of men, so I felt like in one ways my financial struggles was like another man letting her down. But it goes beyond that. But that's, I appreciate the kind words about it. It's just, you know, it's an emotional chapter, so it's not something I really want to talk length about. I think it's something that's better read. But it's just something that I cried through. It felt good to get out. Not say a different type of writing for me, but different type of writing to actually share with readers. So I'm really glad that you liked it and people have been really kind about it. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's a very great chapter and it's something definitely to be proud of. And and it goes back to what I said about you being so generous for your readers and giving us something like that um, and, and writing something like that. It just connects so beautifully with the rest of the book um, and I loved it so much. I know we haven't talked about Beyonce, which I just, I feel like we have to, even if it's just for a minute or two, because she features in both of your books. We're obviously incredibly proud that she hails from the great state of Texas and from Houston. You grew up in Houston. And I would just love for you to talk about your love for Beyonce because it's something I could listen and read about forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a gay man from Houston, Texas of a certain age, so Beyonce is my center for um, that alone. But I write about, and I can't say Jesus, how B-Day got me to feel comfortable about parts that would be, I guess, quote unquote, feminine as like a queer man. I think also just she was a soundtrack to me. Not even so about like mannerisms, but just kind of like actually getting to experience that aspect of my life. So I was grateful to her for that. I also just am thankful to someone from Houston. I think it's really underappreciated and I outlined different reasons why that, you know, she is a very much a black person who has focused on delivering her black art her way without tilting or trying to dilute towards a white audience after a while. I'm talking about very specific periods in her career that I outlined in the chapter, but I think that's a template for a lot of black creators to follow and that you need to be who you are. You don't need to dilute in any way who you are for the sake of securing different types of audiences you should be who you are be good at that and have them come to you so i also recount this kind of experience when i did get to meet i just think she's an amazing person she just reminds me of home she reminds me of a lot of different things and yeah i could go on and on and on but beyonce is houston and houston is home and you know she just is special to me for that and and i also knew that she was amazing before most people but that's fine I'd rather be right than on the other side, uh, Bethius. I had the immense privilege of seeing her and Jay-Z live in London a couple of years ago, and it was, without a doubt, one of the best live experiences ever. And it was right before they dropped the surprise album. So they actually announced the surprise album that was filmed in the Louvre, and it was incredible. The whole experience was amazing. She's just amazing. She is. I 
don't want to end, but I will ask the last question, which is the premise for this podcast. I would love for you to imagine that your books have been placed on a shelf, great literature frozen in time, and I would love to know which authors and books you would want alongside yours on this shelf. Okay, so let's see. I would love to be with Samantha's Irby's We Are Never Meeting in Real Life because I love her book and I feel like I would like to think of myself as a contemporary but she's like amazing and so much funnier than me Janet Mock Redefining Realness because it's also a friend but also I think that's just a really important book I would put Audrey Lord Sister Outsider right next to that because Janet would love that then I would there was this book called Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism Ego Trip was it was just really really funny you have all these different books but like it was basically like satire then next to that, I would actually do the write-up to be hostile, Aaron Magruder's collection of the Boondock stuff. I'm very, very, very into Boondocks. I'm obsessed. Um, I would put Giovanni's room in there. Because even though I might have different feelings, I guess, a little about um, the story now, at the time when I read James Baldwin thing, I remember it, it scared me, but not in the, the worst way because it was just really well done. I want Davis Sedaris and me talk pretty one day because I'm an admitted big fan of Davis Sedaris's work. Bulletproof Diva, Lisa Jones. I always mention this book because there are certain types of books that I just think of me when people ask like, oh, when did you think you could do this? I mean, when I found that book, like high school... But she was a Village Voice columnist, essayist, um, just kind of amazing stuff. You know, there were other essayists I discovered around that time, too. But, you know, they didn't age too well in hindsight, so I'll leave them alone. I want to add, I forgot the title off the bat, but it's an anthology of Zora and Harrison Fiction. It's older. And I want to include her because what I really love about Zora is I really love short stories. So I like a lot of her short stories. I really love her use of dialect. When white people review my books, <laughs> I have to say it, they notice how... Um, colloquial I am that's the term <laughs> I use but I, t- I mean you know, I don't use necessarily dialect but I like Zora Nohars and again it's like writing how you write writing how folks you know whatever talk she got a lot of criticism about that but I you know love it so um, that's my shelf that's a bit I hope it's not too long of a show that's a fantastic shelf oh, I, I, I will take every single title on that shelf and I will say that your books have a very rightful place next to all of those books not just for the immense amount of talent that you have as, as a writer but also just as I sound like a broken record just how generous you are with what you write so I just want to say thank you so much for both of these books I'm just so thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk to you about your writing and about your experiences and I just want to thank you so so much it's been such a thrill you're amazingly kind this was a really great conversation thank you so 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 much but yeah I really really appreciate you so thank you thanks Michael thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it either on Twitter or Instagram or by leaving a review on iTunes until next time happy reading